we are living in someone's false ARG. This is what the Great Reset is. They're just creating what they want the next story to be. And we also seem to revealing right now to understand how this 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 realm works so that we can walk through it with with greater awareness and consciousness. So then going back to the whole thing of like, you know, why does mysticism work? Why does why is synchronicity important? Why is looking at rivers, looking at where you are important? Because that is a baseline reality which is deeper than the ARG. You are going to connect to something. That is the human experience. Mike. Mystic Mark, how are you, my friend? I'm doing excellent. Glad to talk to you. All right. So I'm in my vehicle right now. I'm driving along. So how is the sound for you? It sounds all right. There's uh, that sort of typical background noise from the headset, but I, I'll do my best to, to edit that. Well, you know what they say, you can't make everybody happy. <laughs> That's true, but I'll, I'll do my best. You'll uh, do your best because you're EQ. professional. Exactly. So how are things? Things are good. Last night uh, before bed, I turned on one of the episodes of the 40th Parallel, the one where Ross was um, in Boulder and you were at Turkey Hill. So I was like, oh, look at that. I just kind of randomly picked that one. Or that was the next one that I was, you know, on the on the queue, so to speak. And you guys happen to be talking about Turkey Hill. Um, well, that is uh, fantastic timing. They got, I'm crossing over Susquehanna right now. I'm right in, up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And whoever laid out this city planning, or at least this highway planning, they were uh, they they were masters at creating torture. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking, but I have survived the most difficult part of it. Okay, so you're through so the traffic. It, so I made it through that. It's not even so much traffic; it's how the roads are set up and the merges. Mm, okay. In in another world, in another reality, living here. I think I would have been a world-class designer of highway merges and, and parking lots because I have an uncanny ability of identifying all of the problems when I see them out here. Right. Yeah, there's a, uh, a one-way little thing into the grocery store parking lot that everybody always tries to hang a left out of going the opposite way, and I... Last night was very stubborn with the person who was breaking the law, and I kind of blocked their car and forced them to reverse and go the right way. But yeah, I've been there, Mike. I don't think Pennsylvania is alone in that problem. It seems to be a universal strategy by these planners. 
indeed. So where are you heading? So I'm just going back home. I was seeing my friend Seppi. haven't seen him for a while. Uh, and so I came up this morning, spent some time with him. He's telling me how uh, it, it's uh, – I'll share a little bit about um, Seppi's story right now. He was telling me how he is uh, in the process of relocating kind of up in, uh, to your neck of it's a little bit further north, but that's what he wanted to do. And Steffi's got a permaculture and farming background. He's like, how am I going to get myself a farm up there? And uh, something seems to have just dropped right into his lap. It hasn't completely materialized yet. But the reason why I'm sharing this story and what I thought was so uh, fun and inspirational about it was just kind of how life goes and meets you. Right for what you're looking for. So uh, it was good to catch up with Seth and hear what his strategies are. And, you know, and then I get to go and transition from that on to mine and yours conversation, which is always one of my favorite parts of the week. Oh, thanks, Mike. Yeah, likewise. I do look forward to this. I um, I was watching kung fu movies last night, so I, don't, I can't, not a lot is uh, on the exact top of my head. What uh, kung fu movie did you watch? This one is very obscure. It's called Two Deadly Shaolin Kicks. All right. Tell me a little bit more about it. So in this movie, Shaolin Deadly Kicks, um, these robbers rob a very rich person's house, and they find a treasure map. And they're all kind of like sitting. They, they, they complete the heist successfully. They get the treasure map. And they're all kind of huddled around like, oh, I want to go find the treasure now. And then another guy chimes in. He's like, yeah, me too. Let's get the treasure now. And then the, the leader stands up and he's like, give me the map. And he cuts the map into eight pieces. And he throws each piece to each guy and says, we'll meet back here in three years. So the the, the movie starts off very, very good. But then it kind of. Sure. Go all ahead. right. So let me ask you a couple <laughs> questions. All right. Question number one. Uh, time frame of when this movie was made. 1975. Oh, right in the heart of it. So that's a good time for Kung Fu films, in my opinion. Right. Uh, all right. So that's the beginning. So he, cut, he cuts the map in eight pieces. Yep. What, are you, what are they supposed to be doing in those three years? They're supposed to, they, he says, be a, live a, as regular of life as you can. You know, with the, the Kung Fu movies, what's funny is there's the translation. So that sometimes mm-hmm. certain phrases just aren't English phrases. They're like Asian phrases or Chinese phrases translated. And so, yeah, he says, you know, in other words, you know, be as regular as possible. And then, and then they, um, they cut to a different scene with just one of the robbers who's, you know, so, so, up to so trouble, I'm sorry. Up to no good. I'm no, it's so- good. Go ahead. I'm sorry to have to keep interrupting you, but I, but it's because I want to know. I have to like create this this understanding in my mind. So is this is this the motivation of the leader? The leader is saying, "Listen, we just pulled off this heist, and everyone's got to sit low for a couple of years because if we go start looking for this treasure right away, the guy who robbed it, he's going to know he's going to put one and one together. So he's like, it's going to be three years, and the way he is going to ensure that no one gets any alternative ideas." is the fact that he cuts, no one gets the full map. Right. No one's going to have the full map. But when we come together three years later, 
Then we put our map together, and then we're going to go and, and get the treasure. Is that kind of what, what what's going on? You nailed it. Yeah, that's it. All right, and all right. They, they, there's one more thing. Uh, they kind of were like, oh, and no, don't hurt anybody as they're breaking into this house. And one of the robbers ends up um, murdering one of the people in the house. So the plan did not go at, as they expected. So there was definitely like a... a a reason to more than just you know oh we got to get away with this like they were really worried about getting caught so gotcha because there was a murder right so the okay the rest of the movie kind of follows each robber individually as this cop who remains nameless mercilessly tracks them down and beats them all up with his kung fu moves so is he a Shaolin monk Where's the Shaolin connection? Yeah, well, and, you know, I don't know how accurate that is in the movie, but, yeah, the, the, they're all using Shaolin Kung Fu. So I think, I think that the name Shaolin Deadly Kicks refers to one scene where they comment on how skilled this police officer is. And okay. he's got, like, the deadliest kicks out of anybody which makes him the right like so there were two cops and one of them dies i don't want to give away parts but i mean it's a b movie give it away because i don't think anyone's gonna watch it i know i'm not gonna watch it this is my opportunity to hear the story cool so okay so the b movie is as follows the there are two cops good cop bad cop We'll, we'll just say that that's that's the trope in this movie too well the good cop gets killed via a shovel thrown into his stomach um not not a gory or bloody movie just action but as he's dying with the shovel in his stomach he says oh only you i knew you would survive you know something like that you have the the secret kicks and uh they kind of share this brotherly solemn moment of like sacrifice and honor and 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 this, you know, the younger cop is like now he's ten times more motivated to catch these map robbers, and so it ends up being, you know, just a punch him out movie towards the end. So there's not much more to say on plot because they just kind of beat each other up and and chase each other around. Um, but I just thought the the map concept was fascinating. Like they had this map, and it wasn't a piece of paper; it was a square or i'm sorry um a wooden hexagram map and i just thought that was so strange it looked like a cake when he cut it into eight pieces he like used a samurai sword and cut it into eight pieces but it was like a strange map it was like a square hexagram map that's what made me think of bringing it up so let me ask you this so uh they did not get to the treasure is that correct no, there was one scene where they were digging in a spot that they thought the treasure was, and that's when the cops kind of... Uh, but we never see the treasure. Right. That's why that cop got killed with the shovel, because they kind of interrupted um, the treasure digging. Um, but yeah, they never get to the treasure, because the at the end of the movie, one of the pieces of the map, I think it either... It's it either goes in the water because I got up a couple times while this movie was playing. It either goes in the water or falls into somewhere, like it, it falls down a well or something, and and that basically is like the uh, 
you know, the less the moral of the story for these guys is they were all too impatient and too greedy to wait for what their uh, gang leader had kind of devised as a, as a good plan. Like, hey, let's all wait three years. The coast will be clear. We'll go and dig this treasure up. Uh, well, none of, none of the guys that he had <laughs> asked to join him on this mission had the ethics to keep, uphold that, you know, so... It was interesting to see how it all unraveled. Well, I would say that's, uh, that's you know, it's the reason I'm asking so much. Like, one, I like to hear, you know, we like to have a conversation. I want to hear about the movie. But the nature of what you and I are doing right now is is kind of like everything is in play. You know, all of reality is in play as we are navigating this particular time on Earth. And so if you're going to bring up a movie, you know, I'm going to look at it very much so like, you know, how can we extract, what can we extract from this movie? Uh, what can we extract from this movie and maybe, you know, apply within our own treasure hunt, if you will. Uh, and, and first off, like you have me hooked with the Shaolin monks. Like I got a thing for the Shaolin, right? You know, the whole mythology around that uh, is exciting. And then if you've ever seen like a really skilled uh, Shaolin Kung Fu practitioner, like it's spectacular what they are able to do with the physical body. Right? Right. Right. So, so I guess like what, what we're learning here has to do with timing and patience. Mm. Right? Like, as we saw, they weren't patient. They weren't. And what they had to be patient for was the correct timing. which would be three years. Right. So we'll just, we'll just tuck that in the back of our minds right now. And then, um, and maybe we'll come back. We'll see how the, how our conversation unfolds for the rest of our time here. Unless there's more, there's a, there, there are more takeaways that you have from the, from the film. No, no, it was just kind of something I threw on. Um, honestly, because, I, I was excited that I finally figured out a way to watch all of my DVDs because that's been a big problem for me lately is I've had I've had a, a nice collection of DVDs and I've made the decision, you know, pretty wholeheartedly uh, that I wasn't going to watch TV anymore, you know, and I, I just wasn't going to participate in major mainstream media, right? We, we've talked about this before. Yes, we have. And... Um, and I have a, a collection of DVDs, so my thought has always been like, well, you know, if I ever get bored, I could always just go to one of my DVDs because, if anything, uh, there won't be any commercials, right? So I found that my laptop that I have, uh, I got it for free. It's kind of a funny story. When I first got into this whole thing, I was at an art studio in New Haven, and I was trying to figure out, like, what equipment I would need to do the podcast. And, and this kind of older gentleman who was a big, um, I would call him, like, a Mac person, like an Apple person. Like, he loved Mac computers, knew all the ins and outs. And he was, like, born in that era, too. So he had grown up with this type of technology. And he was like, oh, you can do all that on GarageBand. So he gave me uh, this, like, old Mac laptop that... He considered junk, but I was like, wow, this thing's fully functional, <laughs> you know, and all you got to mm -hmm. do is plug it in. So it's kind of a blessing, but for a while, 
I couldn't do anything with it because I'm not a Mac guy. I don't use Apple programs. Those don't come naturally to me. Um, and also, it doesn't really hold a strong internet connection being built in, like, 2004. So I realized, oh, wow, there's a DVD slot right there. It's not a typical one. It's the kind that you just, like, push the DVD in, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, so I, <laughs> I went back. I dug up my my classic features 50B martial arts movies. It's like a movie set. 12 discs with, like, 50 different movies. They're all B-movies. Um, and they're all, like, from that 1970s era when the the patina of the film just had that really, really awesome vibe, you know? I, I don't really know how to describe it. I'd probably have to go to film school to describe it better. But the the era of that, that era of movies was had a certain... Uh, flavor to it that I really appreciate. Without a doubt, it was the, the golden age. Right. The golden age of kung fu films. Well, and not just kung fu. I mean, there's definitely a bunch of uh, action and and mystery and other types of movies that I've enjoyed that were from that era too. But kung fu in particular, yes, this <laughs> there's a certain place in my heart for for kung fu movies. Understandably so. I, to be quite honest, I think I've seen maybe two or three kung fu films in my entire life. Okay, well, I can give you some recommendations. But, but, but <laughs> I know what they are. I know what they are. They just, you know, but, and I and I understand what you're saying. The one which which I do remember. I think it's called. Is it called the Silent Flute? I think it was Bruce Lee's last film. If it was Bruce Lee's ba- last film, it was. Uh... It was the one where he has Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in, and and fights him. Did you see that part? Um, that I don't remember. I do know what scene you're talking about, but I don't know if it it's the one. And they're going on a journey, and there's this one scene which I just remember. There was the the protagonist of the film was was ferried across a river by like a a 14 year old boy, and. Once the 14-year-old boy uh, takes him across the river, the protagonist destroys the boat and then punches him in his face. Oh. And, and so what, what I like so much about the film, and it may not have been Bruce Lee's last film. It may have been the last film he was working on, and then it was completed without him. I don't know. But it was, uh, from what I understood, it was like one of the most like, philosophical of the films. And so as you learn throughout this, this, this film that like all of the things that the protagonist does, which on first appearance appears to be uh, like, you know, just destructive and hurtful, it actually served a much greater, it served the person who seemingly was on the receiving end of the hardship. And so I forget why the, be- uh, the benefit of, uh, I think maybe he broke the boat because he knew that if he crossed back over in the ferry, the people who were coming after him would probably kill the boy. And then I believe he broke his or he broke his nose and punched him in the face because he was this real pretty boy. And he was like, "Listen, you are just too concerned with outer appearances, and if you continue to be this pretty, you're going to go down this path of just like being very." Uh, 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 superficial as it relates to looks and stuff like that, and I've done you a great service by jacking up your face. 
Okay. And I, until like 10 years, 15 years later, I still remember that. I was like, you know what? Every time I see a pretty looking like preteen, I punch him in their face now. And I'm like, that's the best <laughs> lesson I could give you. So. All right, that's not exactly true. <laughs> I mean, the story of the movie is true, but I don't punch 15 year olds in their face. I know you wouldn't do that, Mike. Man, <laughs> not even your own boys. So no, the, I would. That wouldn't be the last I would punch in their face. <laughs> so, so the the last two movies that came out after Bruce had passed away were uh, the Game of Death one and two, and those movies are kind of famously known because Bruce Lee only filmed the fight scenes for those movies. So they had to really do like a miracle job of figuring out like how to continue the rest of the movie without him. So they basically hired a lookalike who looked nothing like him and made the movie, wrote the movie so that Bruce would have to wear a motorcycle helmet for the majority of the movie. So the whole movie, this guy's wearing a motorcycle helmet. Even when he's inside, and then when he comes inside, he like takes it off and, and is sitting in front of a mirror. And instead of like showing his actual reflection, they they like in the 1970s version of Photoshop, they took like a basically a a static image of Bruce Lee and pasted it on the mirror. So as the actors like looking into the mirror, you see pasted image of Bruce Lee. So it was just kind of like extremely comical. But the the movie that was like really done well after his death um that he was able to be a part of the whole entire filming was Enter the Dragon. And that one I would say is definitely his most philosophical movie in the sense that like it has many different scenes where they where the characters are engaging in dialogue that is pretty much Taoism, you know, the, you know, student teacher Taoist teachings, you know, Bruce opens the movie by kind of trying to teach a student how to punch faster. And he gives him like a sort of metaphor about the moon. I can't quote it off the top of my head, but it's something about like, you can't catch the moon, uh, but you can, you know, you can expect the moon to be there, something along those lines. But it is a very deeply philosophical uh, series of movies. The, fi- the big boss. Uh, I think we talked about this before. I don't. I'm, now that I'm saying it out loud, I feel like I've talked about this before with you. But the big boss, fists of fury, and the way of the dragon each have their own sort of philosophical moral that Bruce. I don't know how much of a, a part of the writing of each story he was, but it feels to me like he had a goal with each one of his movies, one of them being um, shining light on the drug trade, one of them shine light on the relations between Japanese and Chinese people. Um, the other one shows sort of like the experience of an immigrant in a Western country. Bruce joins like a, he, he, he moves to Rome and becomes a part of his family's restaurant and ends up being like the bodyguard for them because they're having all these troubles with uh, with a, a mafia that you know is asking for them to pay pay uh, what do they call it you know like a taxes tribute. so to be a tribute yes so each movie breaks down really uh, deep philosophical 
concepts, I think, more so than most movies at the time. They kind of tackled things that were going on um, for Asian people specifically, but I think it, it affected people all over the world, you know. And there's even this documentary that was put out 10 or 5 or so years ago. I think Spike Lee put it together where he interviewed all these different people who were inspired by that exact same thing, you know, guys like... Uh, like uh, what's his name from the Wu Tang Clan? R Riza from the Wu Tang Clan, and and um, all these athletes and and martial artists and Spike Lee himself and all these different people were inspired by Bruce Lee as somebody who, you know, at that point in time, Western media hadn't shown uh, a strong heroic image of anybody who wasn't white. So for Bruce Lee to kind of come on the scene as like this guy who could fight anybody, no matter how big they were, no matter where they were from, he could win using martial arts skill and not just strength. Uh, that was an incredibly inspiring, even to me, someone who, you know, had uh, John Wayne to look up to allegedly, you know, uh, based on that sort of outlook but i don't know cowboy movies and the like never quite hit me as much as kung fu movies did i i uh, i would agree well a couple things one um the movie i was referencing is none of the movies which which you you listed and now i'm beginning to question maybe it wasn't even a bruce lee film i know i know where why i watched that movie um like back in the early 2000s, uh, probably like maybe 2008, uh, I remember I was, where I received a lot of my information at the time was Red Ice Creations, Henrik, I don't even know what his last name is, you know what I'm talking about? Huh. Out of Sweden. Red uh, Ice Creations, yeah, I've heard of them before for sure. So they're still around, they're still around, but what, uh, what, where they are now and who they were then, I think, are, are, are different beasts. But on the website, there was a list of like 100 movies you have to see. And it was the entire audience was conspiratorial and like seekers of like, you know, questioning life and stuff like that. And so they were movies that dealt with, which, which revealed some sort of truth. And I know that that's where I got where I got the, um, the lead to see the, that particular Kung Fu film. So I'm curious if I could figure out which one that is. Mm. But I want to go, I wanna go and, and bring it back to what you're talking about with Bruce Lee and the influence which Bruce Lee had on so many people. Um, did you see the movie Once Upon a Time in America by Quentin Tarantino? That's the, uh, that's the one with, uh, with the CGI and... and um... They just put it out, right? That was a recent kind of Quentin it, film, right? Yeah, like maybe about two years ago it came out, and right. it was a retelling of the Charles, amongst other things, it was a retelling of the uh, uh, Charles of Manson. The Manson murder. Yes, okay, but, so Leo what? Leonardo DiCaprio was in that. That's Okay, I'm remembering it. Yes, now you remember, as a matter yes. of fact, I did watch it, which is rare for me in the past few years. I mean, so what's interesting about that is just to bring up what, to put in context of what you mentioned, was the Leo DiCaprio character was a um, past his prime Western actor. Like he played in all the cowboy films. It, it takes place in the 60s. 
And so it's all right, at the end of the 60s. And so probably in like the first time, in the beginning of the 60s, maybe the 50s, he was, uh, he was uh, um, uh, a top tier Hollywood actor. And then it, it's cast, it's finding him on the end of his career and dealing with all of the issues of, you know, what does an actor do at the end of his career? And there's this one scene, though, probably what I think is one of the most memorable scenes from that film. It was with his, uh, Brad Pitt plays his bodyguard or stunt double in the, in yes, the film. Yes. It's, and he fights Bruce Lee. <laughs> like a real fight. Like, you know, the setting of the movie is that they're on the set of a movie and Bruce Lee is in between takes and he's mount- and he's talking and everyone's wowed by his philosophies and the Brad Pitt character is like, Oh, you're just a, you know, you're you're a little man with a big chip on your shoulder and I think you're just full of shit and so he's like, All right, well let's have a little contest, let's have a little fight and it shows Brad Pitt beating up Bruce Lee and that and that scene held so much controversy. And the reason why is because it dealt with exactly what, what you're talking about of Bruce Lee being a cultural icon, being the first person who is a, an action hero in a cinema, in a cinema setting, which doesn't fit at the time, the, 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 the white male protocol and, now it went back and it showed the Brad Pitt cowboy beating up the beating up the kung fu master. Right, I remember that scene almost made me want to turn off the movie. It was kind of funny. Uh, the guy who played Bruce Lee did not really, to me, look very much like Bruce Lee. But, um, but yeah, that was that was definitely a shocking scene. I feel like Quentin Tarantino had a a thorn in his side for that kung fu movie genre um i don't know i i, I well that's ob- that's obviously part of tarantino like so much of his films like kill bill and so forth they are 1970s kung fu inspired films right but his and his movies tape. are all like sword slasher kung yes. fu which is like totally opposite of bruce lee i mean he would in most m- movies where a weapon was picked up you see bruce lee use a weapon like, yeah, that's it. Like any time, like a sword gets taken into like the fight, he pretty much immediately disarms them and throws the weapon out of the sort of playing field, if you want to use that term. But yeah, the uh, the the sort of like hack and slash and weapons and like that's a very Western idea of fighting. Uh, right, right, right. And and I think you're absolutely right with like you know what and who is Quentin Tarantino. Um, you know, and I say that like with, without an answer to it, but there is a, con- that's what he does is this like once upon a time in America, I'm going to retell you the story of the story you've already been told. Like, the, I don't think that the Manson story that we've been told is an accurate depiction of what may or may not have occurred. Um, but Inglorious Bastard is another version of a true story which has been kind of tweaked among to a certain view a certain perspective you know the inglorious bastard is a film which which takes on what is known as the Ritchie boys and the Ritchie boys was this oss or you know cia predecessor of jewish secret service folks going behind nazi lines right. so, and why that 
And the only reason I know that is because I came across, they're called the Ritchie Boys because they're all trained in Fort Ritchie, which is right around where, where I live. It's kind of near where Gettysburg is. And me and Jesse, we had uh, this crazy experience how we stumbled across Fort Ritchie and we're just exploring that and seeing how J.D. Salinger and all these other folks, the Rockefellers, were all part of this Ritchie Boy lore as well. Mm, very interesting. That, that... So just like, Go ahead. Go on. Well, I was just going to say, like, your your um, little story about what you and Jesse found kind of brought me back to, you know, the basic, not that we have, like, a set topic, but it brought me back to something you were talking about, I think, either last time we talked or episode seven, which would have been two weeks ago. And you mentioned this guy, Conrad Beisel. Uh, but you also mentioned him in the 40th Parallel episodes, and I've been listening to that, so maybe I'm getting things confused. But either way, um, Conrad Beisel is very interesting in this whole um, realm that you're researching, right? I mean, he's definitely a player in that. So, so let me just uh, pause for one second. So Conrad Beisel, he, is the, he established the... Um, the effort of cloister and the effort of cloister uh, being in Lancaster County and is the first permanent Rosicrucian colony in the new world. The moment you bring him up, I'm driving outside of Harrisburg. I'm on the highway and who pulls up, who's on my left. I look on my left. The moment you're talking about bicycle and it's an effort of police car. I'm nowhere near effort. I'm what? nowhere near effort, but they're listening to us. They know what we're talking about. Oh my so go on God. with Conrad Beisel. So go on with your. <clears throat> oh man. So go on with Beisel. Where, where, where are you going with Beisel? So I don't have any clear, I don't know if this is a clear cut connection, but I was going through my book, uh, Voices of the New Republic, Connecticut Towns, 1800 to 1832, and what they said. And I was basically starting from the beginning, and my goal was to highlight with my highlighter every factoid or snippet about Indians, right? Because I think we can learn a lot from how the colonists described Indians as, as long as we look past their sort of superstition and cultural bias so if, i've been if you understand if you understand the context in which a story is told regardless if it's propagandized or not like you can ascertain like that's true with everything it's a very valuable way in my opinion of, of gathering information thank you so yes yeah, so i'm so i'm just examining this book and just going through and these three names stuck out they were the first settlers of the first town in the colony of Connecticut called Windsor. Uh, it was East Windsor at the time. Uh, but Thomas Beisel, David Beisel, and Samuel Beisel were all uh, some of the first settlers in Hartford County in East Windsor. Now, like I said, I don't know if there's a clear-cut connection, but I just found that to be really strange considering Windsor is named after the House of Windsor, uh, the first colony in Connecticut, and a lot of people might not realize that from the sort of 
indigenous sounding name of Connecticut, but Connecticut is home to New Britain, New London, um, and New. It's in New England, and it's in New England, <laughs> and it's it's amongst many, many. I mean, Cheshire, uh, Avon, like literally. I would say if a, if a name in Connecticut. It, it's either one or two things. It's either an indigenous name or it's named after a place in England. Uh, I'd say maybe eight out of ten times. And those other two times, it's named after one of the people that settled uh, the area. So so it, it's very strange. I don't know how many bicycles there were at this time. but it what's, does... the time, what's the time period of the bicycle boys? So these guys settled in Windsor, let's see, in... <clears throat> 17 in the 1730s that's when conrad beisel founded um uh the cloister 1732 right. so i don't know if they're if they're connected but the, they certainly share uh the same name and they are in the colonies around the same period of time right well it says they were part of uh he was a part of the massachusetts colony and that's where they kind of all got together and said, all right, we're going to go start our own thing in, in Connecticut. And, you know, given what we talked about, about that Connecticut colony, yeah, it could be, it could be possible that, uh, that these folks were somehow related, um, maybe distant cousins to them or who knows. what. So, let, let me ask you this. You said that Windsor is named after the house of Windsor. Right. Uh so, and, and by no means am I an expert as it relates to, like, British monarchy. But I thought that the, the name Windsor was a made-up name in the 1930s in order for um, the family, which is associated with it, uh, whose, whose actual name is Sax Gotha, but in order to separate their obvious connection to the Germans who they're supposedly fighting. That's probably so more not, accurate than what I'm saying. I mean, I'm kind of just going off of uh, seeing that word and assuming that it, it... Right, 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 right. But but what I'm getting at is, like, well, why did they come up with Windsor? And if the name Windsor, because your logic is seemingly accurate. Everything in Connecticut, and every or not everything, but there a lot of the, the, the place names in Connecticut, New England, have a very strong English, have a strong English... Um, uh, connotation, like I don't know where Windsor originated from. Like you know, was was that the reason why the the, the Sachs Gothic family line changed it to Windsor because Windsor was already an established name or or some significance within uh, the the British culture? I don't know. That's that's beyond my knowledge. So if anyone's got any insight into that, maybe they can share that with us. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it might be. It might be, um, let's see, because George V was the founder, and he was born in 1865. So, yeah, I mean, this is this name, Windsor, I guess, existed uh, for, uh, you know, it didn't, it didn't, when it was named, when Connecticut Windsor was named, it might not have been associated with the House of Windsor. But what's interesting is, so we were, we were, Tara and I were examining, and I got to give her full credit for this discovery because it's all her. So that connection with Windsor is strange, maybe not as direct as I, I assumed, but something that Tara found is this. 
She and she was just looking up Connecticut River goddess. Okay, she typed that in, and what she found was an article on a group of people called who called themselves the Connecticut River Gods. Okay, so in the uh, in this sort of new colony, new state world, Connecticut was first in a lot of ways because it was one of the uh, closest major rivers to Europe so people could come uh, up the Connecticut River and trade furs and all the different things they were coming to the new world to trade for. So Connecticut got a real big head start as well as Massachusetts, uh, Vermont, and New Hampshire, all the states that are on the Connecticut River. They all got a head start in this sort of new uh, world trading and became very wealthy and built these river palaces, right? All of these sort of uh, Victorian uh, mansions along the Connecticut River. And before the United States Constitution uh, really came into power and, and, and Connecticut became a state, all of these river gods really had their own sort of pull on the economy. And they were creating what I think we kind of know later on in American history as like company towns where, you know, you can only trade within this certain script that you were given um, from working in this company. And then that script was only good uh, for that company's store. So you would basically work for all of your you know needs and then those needs would be provided for you by just one group, you know, that the company that you lived at, worked at, and did everything else at, right? This sort of plantation um, concept. But given what we know about Francis Bacon and the idea of the plantation, I just found that this concept of the Connecticut River gods was really, really fascinating. Like, who, why were they calling themselves the gods of the Connecticut River? So let me let me just get some clarity. So is that 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 title, uh, Connecticut River God? Is that to one specific like what, were there? Would this be like the as you use the the company town um, analogy? Would this be like the president of it, and they just called them River Gods? And and the second question is: Are you specific? Are you specifically talking about one river called the Connecticut River, or are you referring to all rivers within the state or colony of Connecticut? So we're talking about just the Connecticut River, and this term had been applied, I think, um, post to these people by historians. Gotcha. Okay. So they okay, didn't okay. they didn't identify as river gods themselves, like, uh, outwardly, but that's how they were identified in history. But they were se several um, very wealthy families, and they all lived along the Connecticut River in the Connecticut River Valley, which goes from Middletown, Connecticut, about the mid point in Connecticut, exactly the middle of the state, uh, all the way up to where St. Johnsbury is in in Vermont and New Hampshire because if you're not from New England if you're not familiar New uh New Hampshire and Vermont their border that they share is the Connecticut River so all of those towns along that border have a bridge that go over the river into a, a different town in a different state and I think that um that sort of border area 
I think, allows for a lot of illegal activity or covert activity to take place, you know? Like, I think historically that's been taken advantage of by many different uh, many different groups of people, not just the Connecticut River gods. But, yeah, there's a lot of really fascinating... Uh, fascinating artifacts that they left behind because they had so much wealth uh, at this period when the Connecticut it was it was seven the 1700s to the 1780s is is when this kind of period took place um, and yeah there's still some buildings that are left behind some of their Victorian mansions but it was the Williamses the Stoddards. Um, and then a couple other families that were really notable members of this group, the Connecticut River Gods, the Pinchones. So, yeah, there's <laughs> some interesting names there. But, yeah, I, I wanted to bring that up and give credit to Tara because we I never heard of that before. I'm sure most people hadn't heard of that before, but I'm interested to go further and look further and see what else there is. Because when I was a delivery guy in that town, I remember how grand and how Victorian the buildings were that happened to have that riverfront property. And I just assumed, well, yeah, they're wealthy. They have riverfront property so they can afford to make their house look that way. But it's really cool to know that those buildings are older than the United States itself. In some cases, the ones that are still standing, and they were probably built upon something that predates them. Right. I mean, that certainly happens. Well, and that brings me to the, you know, the Tartaria stuff, which I've been looking into a lot lately. And it's very interesting to note that these stone rows, I mean, this is speculation, maybe wild speculation, but those stone rows we talked about in our last conversation what if that that's what walls look like when they're eroded and, and, and there was some sort of like cataclysm that turned them all to rubble and they're just like, you know, <laughs> left the, the remnants of walls, you know, rub, rubbleized. I mean, that's wild speculation, but, you know, when you say they're built on the foundation of much older buildings and places, I'm like, yeah, they, I mean, there's evidence for that. If we take a look at these stone rows, I mean... I don't think a glacier pushed them all in a neat pile like that. And, and there's a lot of stories that say that the indigenous people um, built those stone walls and stone rows and the colonists just kind of found them and, and used them for, um, you know, fencing and whatnot because it was convenient, but they did not build them themselves. And there's a lot of evidence. I think in that presentation which I sent you, uh, which I sent you a couple of weeks ago about all of the right. the mysterious stone walls, like they're saying that a lot of the the indigenous cultures are like, no, these these predate us. We don't know who built this. Like right. it's the same idea what you hear about um, about uh, uh, the the great cities ancient cities which we find in Mesoamerica, like, you know, the, the Mayans or the Olmecs, they, they ju- or the Aztecs even, they just inherited these, these uh, cities and structures from an unknown uh, previous civilization. Mm. And so whether this falls under Tataria or whatever, I mean, just like the whole idea of being open to realize that, like, 
the same thing which Quentin Tarantino does is like, you know, plays around with stories. Um, it's always good to, to be willing to question everything, which, you know, the, the narratives, which you give yourself for like what something is, where did this, where did this stone wall come from? You know, we may not be able to answer that, but, but not to be so quick to, to, um, to jump to a conclusion that this is what it is. Right. Well, and, and the reason I kind of centered around that part, because the Bicels were, were from Windsor, and there's a story that connects them to this point. Um, and like I said, the Windsor is on the Connecticut River Valley. Maybe I didn't mention that. It's in the Connecticut River Valley, so it's one of these uh, places where the Connecticut River Valley gods ran, uh, you know, came to prominence in the New World. So they talk about the Windsor Indians as a shorthand, but the tribe... The tribes were were gone. They went by Podunk, was the uh, was the name of the different peoples that lived in Windsor, or maybe just that small group. And it says little is known of the religion or mythology of the Indians. The tradition is that they believed a future existence, and that super superior beings managed the affairs of the world and the destinies of men. And to them, they occasionally offered sacrifice. They worship principally one almighty being who they called Manetho or Hobomoko as the author or remover of evil. They believe the future punishment of the wicked as well as the happiness of the good, a dictate of the common sense of mankind, whether pagan or civilized. So going back to that context that we're seeing things through, it sounds like this author is kind of surprised to find such a complex uh, mythology within the um, Windsor Indians. And then it kind of connects to the Bicels again, saying, Thomas Bicel, son of John, before mentioned, saved the life of a Windsor Indian who fled to him for protection while making hay in the meadow by rolling a cock of hay over him and thereby, thereby secreting him, secreting him from his pursuing enemies. For many years, the people felt fearful apprehensions of the murderous designs of the Indians. They attended public worship armed on the Sabbath. So there was this uh, ever-present fear in this area of the Mohawks, right? They were like the, they ran around and, and gave, you know, asked for tribute and basically destroyed anybody who did not tribute to them. Uh, so there was a, a fear amongst this group of Native Americans in, in Connecticut that the Mohawks would show up. And so they kind of built all these forts. We talked about this when we talked about Turkey Hill. But the forts connect onto the Connecticut River and the Housatonic. So there are different rivers in Connecticut that are not equally as big, but they kind of carve the landscape. And Windsor happens to be situated in between uh, three or four pretty major rivers so it's a fertile area to be and i think a lot of indigenous people lived there maybe they were more civilized than we're told i mean that this concept of the cherokee plantation um was like a a building buildings that the cherokee sold to people in i think it was south carolina but 
Yeah, it's very interesting to think that the architecture of the ancient Americas could have been far more advanced than we're led to believe. Like, like even down to like woodworking and stoneworking and, you know, and maybe these people were building houses and whatnot and they weren't just building wigwams. Like they were only building the temporary structures when they were kind of traveling around and they had these centers where they had real buildings that were what we would consider permanent buildings. And, and those got sort of, taken over and repurposed when the colonists came here? Well, there's a bunch which, which, which you just laid out there. <laughs> uh, uh, and I think as you continue to move through the, the from the 40th parallel episodes I did with Ross, there, there are two things which I think you're going to find interesting in light of what you just shared. Uh, the first one has to do with, and this is all Ross's work, so I'm just going to do my best to kind of paraphrase it. But what he would call, he would, what he would say would be um, playing ball in, in the new world. And he was like, listen, all the people there, we, we've been given, we've, so many of our, of, our, of our stories of how we understand the past, you know, they're, they're, they're inaccurate on one from one degree to the other. It's not like it's simple as saying like you just take the opposite of it. So he'll say like they, they were playing ball. So ball, and what he means by that is they were participating in the practices of ball worship, like B-A-A-L, um, and that in a general sense. But one of the things which he's talking about is this idea of tribute, this idea of domination, this idea of like, yeah, we're going to go and collect ours and, and and how we see that in all of these different types of, you know, quote unquote civilizations and how the threat of force and the threat of, um, the threat of violence, unless you, you go along with, with their shakedown is a very real thing. And so, you know, that, that seemingly is part of, of the history of what life was like here in the 1700s. Um, not for all folks, but that's what you're describing. But, where I really want to go into, I think is interesting. We talk, uh, Ross and I go into this in the episode where we go to the Ephrata Cloister. There's an episode where we go to the Ephrata Cloister, and that's the Bicel place. And within the Ephrata Cloister complex, they still have the the cemetery, cemetery of the people who live there, and that cemetery is probably like let's say the size of half of a football field. You know, it's rectangular. It's about whatever those dimensions would be if you were to cut a football field in half. And surrounding the perimeter of that is a a brick wall, a stone wall. I think it was stone or brick. I don't recall. Which is probably stone, um, and maybe about three feet, like waist level. But and as we were walking around, kind of as tourists looking at everything, uh, we happen to notice that throughout. The, the perimeter of this stone wall or the, right where the stone wall meets the ground. So at the bottom of the stone wall, uh, maybe in about five or six different places, you could see where the earth meets the stone, what looks like the top of an archway. Okay. There's like an archway. I mean, it's, it's, and there is probably like, let's say a couple of inches from the ground itself to 
the bottom of that archway. Like you could stick your hand like very easily uh, underneath that archway and your hand would be on the outside of the wall. Do you kind of understand what I'm describing? Does that make sense? Yeah. And so the idea was just kind of like what you're suggesting. We're like, is this really a wall? You know, or, or is this just a three-foot wall? Because what it would imply, or at least an, a possibility, is that these arches may be like 10-foot arches, and we're just seeing the top of it, and the earth is just raised up, almost in the same way if you've ever seen a, a, a fire hydrant, which has been around for a while, and maybe the bottom third of it is underneath the earth. Like the earth, for whatever reason, has risen up around it. When we saw this wall, we're like, is this really like the, the top of what, what it may have been like a 10 foot, an 8 foot, well, who knows, like, but a much, much tall, taller wall. And this has just been repurposed as a cemetery, like, you know, in the 1700s. I don't know, but those, those type of questions are, um, I find them like very, very exciting. You know, it frees up our understanding of what hit, what is being hidden right in front of us. Right. Yeah. I, um, I still don't know what to make of it. At first I was very skeptical about the Tartaria stuff, but the more I dig in, the more I'm like, oh, okay, I could see how this would work. And, uh, one thing, and whether it's, go ahead. whether it's the Tartaria one or, or maybe there's something else totally different. But the, what I think is the, the, the real beauty, like, you know, um, the real beauty of the Tataria perspective is it introduces like this, this black swan idea of our history. And so whether or not this is ac an accurate description, what it does do is it, it, it introduces the idea that, hey, maybe there's something totally different which explains all of this. Right. And that to me is immensely, immensely um, uh, valuable in terms of understanding what the hell is going on because we have so many of these self-imposed limitations of what we think is possible of what came before us. Mm. Right. Yeah. The, um, sorry to go back, but the, the other name that just, I just remembered from the Connecticut river Valley gods was the partridge. The partridge family comes from, uh, this area, which is like, I forget what TV show the Partridge Family was, but that was like one of the classic. The Partridge Family. It was literally called the Partridge right, Family. Right. So, <laughs> so, so, and they were like a traveling uh, family music group, right? That was the other That's thing. That's exactly about their right. Show. Exactly right. So, so I'm curious what you're going to tell me about the real Partridge Family, like where that is, because I'm familiar with the Partridge Family so, as a TV show, but not as a historical, it's historical reference point. Right, so they, they settled in an area that was disputed during the French and Indian War, the British uh, versus the colony or the people of New Hampshire and Massachusetts, and they were fighting over this land, and the French and the Indians were a part of it somehow too. It was just a whole big mess. And the Partridge family under the um, patronage of Oliver Partridge from Hatfield, Connecticut, a place named for their hat production, I would assume. Um, they all moved up to 
this part, which is now known as Dalton or Hinsdale, New Hampshire. And it's known for having pristine waters, but it's just uh, it's just interesting to see, like, okay, this family is very clearly a kind of, like, Connecticut dynasty. Uh, they were, you know, creating furniture, fabrics, earthenware, ceramics. You know, they were in the business of trading these sorts of things at a time when, you know, only wealthy people can afford, could have afforded to... You know, decorate their homes with those kinds of things. Um, so I imagine it was, it was not like a, a cheap market. They were dealing with fine goods, um, and then they became, possibly, they were the descendants. Their descendants created the Partridge family somehow. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not gonna speculate too hard there. But yeah, that uh, that was another little odd thing, and I I, I think there's a. Uh, there's definitely a lot of pareidolia that you have to sort through in order to find some of these connections. I would agree with that. I, I, I'm thinking about the Partridge family as a TV show. I mean, that was probably late 60s to mid 70s, I think is when it came about. And it was, it was just that. It was like a, a family of musicians that traveled and they traveled around on this colorful bus. And I want to say the a peacock was their symbol. And David Cassidy, if you're familiar with him, he was a 1970s heartthrob. He was, that was his launching part. Oh, and um, God, is Susan still alive? Uh, Danny, Danny begins with a D. He's got red hair. And in the early 2000s, he had a, like a, a resurgence of popularity. And I would think he, um, became another pop culture, uh, had a second life in pop culture, but he comes from that. Danny Bataducci. Uh, I'm, I'm getting maybe that name confused with Joey Bottafuco. No, you're right. Danny, Danny Bonaducci is definitely the guy. <laughs> and he's so from those, PA, this guy. Where, where is he from? Let's see. I just had it up. Were you going for a walk over there, Mike? So I just parked my car. Oh, okay. I couldn't park in my driveway, so I'm walking down. Oh, you ever okay. seen like when when people are like screaming into the phone as they're walking, and you're like, "That person's nuts." Well, I'm I'm that person, right? Now. <laughs> so he's from Broom Mall, Pennsylvania, in Delaware County. Ah, so outside of Philly, right? That's where Delaware County is. Yep. Yeah, I don't know if there's anything there, but he's definitely. <laughs> He's got an odd look to him now. Just Googling. Yeah, I, I can't. Yeah, he was, it was, it, he was a train wreck. So, like, there's certain people who who people watch just because of the train wreck qualities, and he would fall underneath that that guise, I would say, in terms of the, uh, the pop culture narrative, which we're all engrossed in and participate with him. Well, I um... – I recorded my 100th episode last night, or at least parts of it. Of My Family Thinks I'm Crazy? Yep, the 100th episode. Wow. So we That's quite an accomplishment. Thank you. We uh I decided that I would do something like a review, maybe even like a, a way cuz I feel like 100 is is a a milestone and and maybe people who haven't heard the show before 
might come to that one first. Like I can name it something that would be like the welcome to the show <laughs> show. So if you hadn't heard the podcast before, you can start with this episode and get a good feel for who I am and what I talk about. So I, I shared my story about Amos, uh, someone who I probably mentioned to you a bunch of times. And he's you mentioned Amos. Yeah, he's definitely somebody who is on my list of people to get on the podcast uh, from my personal life, if I could ever find him out there. But I, I went into depth because some people asked me uh, questions on Instagram about about oh it had I ever gone in depth and told the full story so I decided to do that and then I thought I would kind of include mashups of parts of different episodes that I really enjoyed so I'd take like a, a piece of uh, our conversation from episode 25 and then like a piece of you know someone else and, and just kind of put them all together and then uh Maybe this is a little inside baseball, but yeah, either way, this episode will be out that the, the same day as the 100th episode of My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, so uh, I'm kind of bringing it up uh, for the motivation of getting some ideas from you, because I'm almost like still, it's still incomplete, um, but I don't know. At the same time, I'm like, I'm pretty happy with, with what, what I planned on doing. I want to do like a four-hour kind of episode. With, and put as oh, much stuff oh. as I can in there. Well, it sounds like you got a good plan. I just I didn't, don't know. I, I didn't want to single out one person as a guest, you know, for for a milestone like that. I don't know. I just yeah, felt, I would agree with that. Yeah, you want to put in like the 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 best stuff, right? And then for episode ninety nine, I did um, my two first appearances on zero, where Sam. Tripoli had me on to talk about synchronicity, and then we talked about the power of positivity, which was cool. And I think I even was on a podcast. Have you ever been on a podcast called the 13 Questions Podcast? Yes, I have. I just did that podcast last night. That's an enjoyable one, isn't it? Yeah. Like it was... It's a little bit... It's a unique setup where they ask everyone the same 13 questions. Right, right. And you, you came up uh, once or twice in the conversation, and that's what Bill had mentioned. He said, oh, yeah, Mike's been on this show before. I remember having a very positive experience on that. So good for you, and maybe I'll check that out. I, uh, uh, I'd be curious. I don't even remember what the questions were, but I remember <laughs> I remember I enjoyed – I remember getting off of that, that conversation and feeling – I was like, wow, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was it so, was a good time. You're all over the place. Very very much so. <laughs> so what I was hoping to do, so where are we right now? We're probably an hour and five minutes in. All right. So I want to switch gears a little bit and I want to talk to you a little bit about the moon. I love it. Hear it. Can we? Because this is an area which we've uh I remember when we first started talking, whenever it was that we first uh, our paths first cross, uh, the moon was a big part of it, correct? Right. I actually heard something recently, I'll just say real quick, that the moon is made of uh, entirely silver. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but that's that's the, the my update on the moon, is that it's, it's entirely made of silver. It's entirely made of silver. I have no idea what the moon is. I have no idea what the moon is, but um, 
I'm I'm particularly I'm intrigued by the moon uh, just for the idea that one it's it's universally accessible to all people on earth. Like you know, you get a look up and you get it. We all see it, mm-hmm. and um, and that it has a somewhat predictable uh, predictable motion or phases. Like you know, it goes through the same the same cycle over and over again. And the reason why it it is why I find it important is because it is something which is seemingly objective, uh, and that's you know I'm not, I'm I I don't have I don't have a conclusion as to like how or what the moon is, but I do know that it's there, and I'm certainly open to the fact that our moon is completely like an artificial uh, an artificial uh, um, uh, satellite, but nonetheless, nonetheless. It it is outside of our our collective um, uh, false reality, uh, particularly as it relates to timekeeping. And so, by by paying attention to the moon, this is you know we talked about this before. Is at the very least, it's not so much that at least for me that there is a a worshiping of a moon deity like that. That's not my hot button at all. But there is a recognition that it is something universal and it's objective versus our our calendar system and I'll just use the Gregorian calendar the primary one which is used here which is uh, uh, a false a false timekeeping mechanism though it's completely true within our system so stepping outside of it allows us this whole rewilding consciousness aspect and and we've talked about that and you know the moon and the month and all that so I've been uh, I've I've created my own sort of day tracking system based upon lunar lunar cycles and kind timed it in with our Gregorian calendar so I can be more grounded in outside of the system but but be able to to work within it so that's I'm just saying that as a as a as a background because I'm about to share some new information with you okay all right so by no stretch of the imagination am I a earth science expert. You know, I'm not, I'm, that's, I, I, maybe I, I, I pay attention to those things, but I'm not an expert. I'm figuring this out and I'm paying attention to the moon and I've always been fascinated by the moon or, or questioning. It's probably a lot of us. So I think most people have this, uh, this is usually a, a jumping off point, which is, well, if the, Earth is creating a shadow, and that is why we see the phases of the moon. Well, then how is it that we have that straight line when the moon is in its first quarter or last quarter positioning? You know, that straight line. Like, how could our circular moon, our circular spherical Earth create a straight line shadow? And again, I don't have an answer to that. There are lots of ideas like, oh, whatever that may be. I'm, I, I just hold that as, as like kind of this, this jumping off point of there are questions which I don't have answers to. And, and to begin to look at what I can see with my own eyes um, to further get into uh, maybe the mechanisms of what, we're, of what we're witnessing, of what we're experiencing. So all that being said, there's something which uh, – Discovery to me, 
And if there's someone who is probably an expert of the earth sciences, you probably are well aware of what I'm about to say. But I backed into this through just my own continuing to go deeper and deeper and paying attention with the moon. And I also want to say that as I've I've been paying more and more attention to the moon and being able to identify the different planets with my own eyes and seeing the movements and all of that sort of stuff, the, the real value, what I think the real value of all of this is it takes my understanding outside, uh, my understanding of reality outside of a predictated storyline. And our predictated storyline is so gross that we don't even realize often like how we're understanding reality is something that has been predictated to us. So that being said, I'm going to explain to you what the new moon and the full moon are, or at least maybe I'm going to be able to give you another way of looking at it. Are you ready? I'm at the edge of my seat. Let's hear it. You're at the edge of your seat. Okay. All right. So, so, so first, if you're going to go through, if you're going to go through a process of becoming more, um, more connected with just the cycles of the moon. And and I'm going to go slightly off this line for a moment. So there was once upon a time, I I would say right now, I'd say right now, if you were to go in and survey a hundred random folks off the street who are living in any city and you ask them like, you know, do you know when the net, when the next month begins, they're going to be able to give you an answer. Like, you know, "Eh, it's in three weeks, it's in 27 days, it's tomorrow, whatever it may be. Like everyone is going to, has a point of reference for when the next month begins. And they're probably going to have a point of reference for that. Like, you know, December, like, Oh, December. And, you know, for me, that's my birthday. And I know like, you know, the holiday season and new year's, and all that like but those are all just you know particularly the holidays they're they're part of the 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 false reality in which we're living in but then if you were to go and ask those same hundred people um you know when is the next new moon when is the next new moon most people aren't going to be able to answer that uh they're not going to know and the reason why they're not going to be able to answer that is because it there's no value you know, it's there's a value of understanding the calendar system because the entire world works upon it. And if you want to be part of the world, well, then you need to know the system which it follows time. And so that's the value of it. But if you're going to be following the moon, unless you're like, you know, in some sort of moon worshiping cult, or if you come up with uh, another reason why the moon is of interest to you, there is no value of of following the moon. But as we've discussed in the past, like, you know, the, the, the months are arbitrary, but the moon cycles are objective. Like we can all agree upon, we could all, if everyone's paying attention on earth of, of, of following the moon, we're all going to be more or less on the same page of when it's the new moon, when it's the full moon, because we're watching it. So that's objective. Um, the point with all, with all of this is, is um, the understanding of, of how did we move off of a universally understood um, timekeeping mechanism, the, that of the moon cycle, to something which is totally arbitrary, which is the calendar system? And at some point, I'm going to suggest that the majority, whereas now, let's say like 5% of the population would know when the new moon was, I bet you there was a point in time where. of the population would have known when the new moon was, regardless of what that population would be, whether you're living in a colony, whether you're living in a a community culture, you're going to be aware of the cycles of the moon. And the reason why you're going to be aware of the cycles of the moon is because you don't have electricity. 
Right. Like prior to there being electricity, it's like you're going to be much, much more aware of when there's going to be light in the sky or not. And so the what I'm see right now is that if that is the case of of the if that is the of the 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 reason why we have become disconnected, why we've lost the value of needing to know when the moon was, and obviously, like back then, like before the the mass electrification of of Earth, there were still calendars. Like people still would follow the calendar, but they would also know what's going on in the moon. That became less and less significant as we had artificial light, and you didn't need to knew. Uh, did not need to know about or even be aware of the moon because there, you have no need for the the light which which the moon provides. So if we go and we use the the electrification process of bringing electricity and artificial light into households, that probably happened in the late 1800s, early 1900s is when that became uniform across Earth. And so that was probably the time period when we began to move off of the necessity of, um, of, of knowing what's going on with the moon. So all of that is being said another way of, I would say we're probably five generations removed of it being a universally uh, human like following times on a completely artificial um, time period. So all that being said, you know, that's part of the reason why I've, I've purposefully tried to reconnect myself with just the moon, the moon to, 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 to reconnect, to rewild consciousness and all of that. And so that brought me to what I'm about to tell you right now. And my understanding of what, how I knew the, the lunar cycle, which would basically be like new moon to first quarter to full moon, to third quarter, to new moon again, that has changed. And so what happens, what happens when there's a new moon, or there's another way of understanding it, I understood it by just uh, how, what I would see or not see within the sky. But there's another mechanism which is in play, which explains the same, which explains the same phenomenon, the changing of the moon. And that has to do with moonrise time. Okay, so we're all very aware that the sun rises and the sun sets. It's very, very evident. That's when you know daylight begins, and arguably you'd say like that's really when the day begins, not at midnight, but but the day should begin like when the when the sun when the sun uh, breaks the horizon, regardless of wherever you are, you find yourself on Earth. Um, but we've moved away from that to like, oh, no, the next day is at 12.01 uh, a.m., you know, this artificial construct. Uh, but we're completely, for most of us, are disconnected with, with the moon rising time. And as I've began following the moon, I've been very, very puzzled by like, why is it, why am I seeing the moon sometimes during the day and sometimes I don't see it during the day and all of these sort of things. And as my curiosity was my guide, I came to realize that this is what happens. When the moon rise is at the same time as the sunrise. So said another way, when the when the sun rises, uh, when the sun and the moon and the eastern horizon are all in a line, that is your day of the new moon. 
If you go and you look at all of the moonrise times and you go and you look at when the, uh, the, or the, the new moon is and the full moon is, you're going to see that this is when it all aligns up. Another way of understanding the new moon is, oh, the new moon is when the sun and the moon and the horizon are in alignment. Okay? And so now what is the full moon? The full moon happens when this occurs. When the moon rise time, so when the moon meets the eastern horizon, is at the same moment, generally. It doesn't have to be at the same seconds, usually by looking at the times. I went through and I like verified all of this by you know, the, the, the charts that tell us when the sun sets and the sun rises and so forth. When the moon rises at the same moment that the sun sets, so when the sun hits the western horizon, as the moon is on the eastern horizon, that is when we have the full moon. Okay. Are you following like kind of the mechanism which I'm describing? Absolutely. Yeah. It seems like there's a, there's not a constant uh, cycle. It seems like there's a delay or something. Well, there, 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 there's a play. There's like, it's, it's, it's not as precise as what I just described. Like, it's not like the moment that the moon is on the horizon is the, or the eastern horizon at the exact same moment the 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 um, that the sun dr- drops down beneath the western horizon is when we have a full moon. But when it's the 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 closest time within a lunar cycle is the day we get the full moon, and when uh, right. the opposite when they both rise is when we get the new moon. So that in itself is, I would say, like, you know, it's interesting trivia. You're like, oh, wow, that's an interesting piece of trivia. Like that, that, that is another way of understanding the cycle or this, this, this dynamic between the earth and the moon and the sun, regardless of whatever the earth actually is, whatever the sun actually is, whatever the moon actually is. But this is why I think this is so significant. This is the reason why I'm sharing this with you. It is the simple the simple fact that your conscious mind is beginning to understand this, this, this relationship, this dynamic between the earth, the moon, and the sun in a new way, which is objectively true. So if we go back to the typical person, when I use that analogy, that only five, my guess is 5%, and I still think that's probably a, a big estimate, 5% of the population knows when the new moon is. Um, if they are of that 5%, they're probably just thinking about it in their mind. They're conceptualizing it. They're framing it up based upon this one way of understanding it. It's like when you don't see the moon, when the moon is, it is invisible in the sky. But we're changing that, and we're looking at it now like, oh, this is the day in which the, which the moon and the sun and the eastern horizon are in alignment. What's happening is you're looking at the same phenomenon. But now you're looking at it from a different perspective. And so as we begin, so that is what the value of all of this is, is because you're beginning to look at the exact same thing and you're seeing it from a new way. It's still just as true. What I'm describing by saying that the timing of the rising and the falling of the sun and the moon um, corresponds with what we see in the sky, the full moon or, the, or, or no moon at all. We're, we're talking about this. We're describing it from different ways. As we begin to develop that as a, as a muscle, I'm going to say that's a muscle. And what the muscle is, is to constantly, as we're learning and observing new things and recognizing new correspondences, we're beginning to look at all, 
at, at all things in a different way. And that is the value. We want to begin to look at all of the stuff we've just taken for granted, particularly the objective parts of our experiential reality, the sunrise, the sunset, and so forth. And as we redefine how we see that, it doesn't matter what you're redefining it as, just as long as that there, uh, you understand what the basis of that logic is, what we're beginning to do is, is allowing ourselves to look at all things differently. And it is during this time, as all things are shifting, that as we begin to develop that muscle of looking at all of these assumptive things that we didn't think that there was a new way to see it, that as we see it in a, do, a new way, we're going to begin to discover more and more as, attributes of our physical world, which have always been hiding before us uh, as we've been experiencing life. So that's what I wanted to share with you. What do you think about all that? What comes to your mind when you hear all of these things? Well, I'm fascinated, and I was thinking as you were talking about it that you might touch on like something that I've experienced. I'm sure many people have experienced uh, seeing the moon in daylight and it not being 100% full, like in the sense that like you kind of can see part of it, but it's in daylight. You know, it's in the daytime sky. Um, where does that fit into this? So when the, when the sun is, is rising and the moon are rising together, we can see the, the moon during the daytime, right? And that would be the new moon. And then at night it's just dark. Yes. All right. All right. So let me, uh, and I'm going to explain it to you the way which I understand it. And I'm going to use the model of what we have all been given of what's happening in the heavens, which is mostly like the, the moon goes around the earth and the earth goes around the sun. I don't know if that's an accurate description of what's happening or not, but it's the best thing which I have. And that seemingly fits what we're experiencing. Okay. <clears throat> so if you have um, on the day of the new moon, what it means is, the moon and the sun rise at the same moment, okay? And so throughout that day, the moon is basically where the sun is. So as the sun goes from the eastern horizon and moves across the sky and eventually disappears behind the western horizon, the new moon is at the same place where the sun is and you can't see it. It's like kind of like that story you told us about the guy who went and hid underneath the, the hay barrel and he sec secreted himself from his pursuers. You couldn't see him because he was under the hay. Well, the moon is under the sun. Like it's hidden by the glare of the sun. Right. All right. So that's why it is. But the moon, if you if you go and you look, and this is what what, what was so fascinating for me. So I went and I looked at the the. You can go and look at any sort of like. Um, there are many different websites which are going to list to you moonrise and moonset times and sunrise and sunset times. And what I did was I created a comparison list of um, of moonrise and sunrise times, and I was comparing them. And what you see is the moon, It the let's assume that we're going towards uh, uh, the, the summer, or excuse me, let's assume we're moving towards the winter solstice, which is where where we are right now. And that means every day 
the amount of daylight gets um, a little bit less and the amount of darkness gets a little bit more, right? right? Um, until you have the shortest day um, and that's the, the, uh, um, that's the solstice. So the, the sunrise time, so then you have that, you've got that one mechanism. And then this, this is actually like, you know, I talk a lot about like artificial stuff, but there is a point or there is a value with the artificial. The, the problem with the artificial is thinking the artificial is true. And so the value of the artificial, the value with these artificial times with midnight and so forth, is we have a point of reference which doesn't change. And so one of the things which we can see with this artificial clock, which we use, we can see that um, as the days get shorter and shorter, um, the time uh, the time of day which the sun rises is one minute later. Like, you know, let's say it rises at 7 a.m. right now, and then tomorrow it's going to rise at 7.01, and the next day at 7.02. Like, that's how the, the daylight gets shorter and shorter. Okay. Um, the moon in a given 24-hour period, its moonrise ch- time changes. It's not it, – it's – it's not as uh, consistent as the sun, which tends to change by like a minute or two in a given day. The moon can change from like an hour to about 90 minutes a day. It, um, it, it rises one hour later. So on the day of the new moon, they're both around 7 a.m. is when they would rise. But then the next day, the next day, the moon rises at um, the next day, the moon rises at uh, 6 a.m., whereas um, the sun rises at 7.01 in this example. Are you following me? Is that yep. making sense? Yep. So when that happens, on the day of the new moon, the moon is theoretically where the same place as the sun the whole time, and that's why you don't see any of the moon. When the next day after the new moon, theoretically what you would see when you're particularly thinking of the new moon, not in terms of rising times, but in in what you can see in the sky, it's going to look like a crescent moon. It should look like, you know, just a sliver. And then the next day that sliver gets a little bit fatter and a little bit fatter and a little bit fatter. So the sliver, theoretically, the day after the new moon is going to be really small. And it is going to begin to show itself before the uh, about an hour before the sun rises. And what I think is what we're the way I understand it, what we're seeing the day after the new moon. Well, maybe the moon is too close to the sun in terms of where it's where it's moving across the sky, you know, and we don't see we don't see it like both from the quote unquote, the shadow, which is cast from the earth, you know, as that grows and the amount of moon we see gets bigger and bigger, there's more to look at, but then also as the moon rise time becomes less close to the sunrise time, then it becomes easier for us to see the moon itself. um, And it's not hidden by the bright glare of the sun disk. So when we begin to see the moon in the sky, it usually has to do with where is it relative to the sun. The further away it is from the sun, um, as the moon is um, as the moon is going through its cycle, then we should be able to see it during the daytime. And there and there are two time, there are two ways which we see it: when the moon is getting bigger during the day, and when the moon is getting smaller. 
So let's go to when the when we have the full moon. So what that would mean is exactly as it becomes dark out, when the sun dips beneath the western horizon, is when the full moon is rising. So we theoretically, when it's the full moon, you have an entire night to watch it. But let's fast forward five days before that. The moon isn't quite full yet, but it's moving towards the fullness. But it is rising not when the moon, when the sun dips beneath the western horizon, but it's rising like let's say the sun is let's say it's three o'clock in the afternoon. The sun is getting you know moving towards the western horizon, and now the moon, which is getting closer to the full, this is when it has its rise time. So because it's so far away from the sun, we can see it during the day. And as like five days later, when uh, the sun on the day of the full moon, the actual full moon, you shouldn't be able to see it during the day. You only see it at night. Right. And when you so as you're moving closer and closer to um, the uh, um, as if the moon the moon moves faster than the than the sun or it, you know as i said like each consecutive day the moon rises 1 hour earlier than it did the day before we can go and begin to see the dynamics of where the moon is relative to the sun for that given day the moon doesn't move so fast that you see it jetting across the see this is where it gets very confusing on a given day the moon and the sun they are relative to each other but it begins to drift over time. Right. So you don't see real-time movement. You only can see the movement as you're comparing it over uh, a period of time. So it requires like a flexible mind to be able to like track the different movements, the different dynamics which are happening in the heavens. It is my opinion. This is my opinion right now. It is not that by studying the moon that suddenly you become like you get a a a a insight into the nature of reality i don't think that's what happens the reason why you want to study these dynamics and look at the stars and look at the heavens and understand how they shift throughout what we're calling the seasons is because you're taking your consciousness and you are attaching it to something which is outside of our known false reality and every time you do that, you are resting the false reality narrative in your consciousness, and you're putting it to something else. It's not fantasy. It's not like you're daydreaming. You're looking at something. And theoretically, you could go and do this with like, oh, just studying a tree in the backyard. But the beauty of it is there is a quicker movement in the heavens or there's a different pace by, by studying the movement of the heavens as opposed to studying the, the changing of the leaves because that takes you know months and you might not be looking at the same things. Every single time we begin to just contemplate and notice the patterns outside of the false reality, all we're doing is we're taking our mind outside of it. We're giving our mind a rest from it. We're not defining what it means, but by the very act of doing that, insights will come because we're no longer, we are no longer reconfirming the stories which we've been told. Mm. 
Right. That is the value. It's almost like I'm studying this not so. Uh, I'm studying this because I want to step out of the false reality, but I don't know what's going to happen when I do that. All I know is by doing this, I'm going to be able to see things I'd never be able to see because my mind is so entranced to the false reality. It's not so much that knowing the month, knowing that December 1st is in, in three weeks is a bad thing. It's that when all you think of is the fact that December 1st is the only thing that you never realize that there are other ways of looking at it. And once you begin to, 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 to dictate your consciousness, the ability to look at something which is not a false reality without get, and what I mean by that, by not giving it a definition, but by bringing like high concentration and analysis to its workings, well, then what you're doing is you are calibrating your mind to see things in a way which is different than what we are, um, uh, what we have been conditioned to interpret our experience as. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It kind of reminds me of something Lindsay uh, from the Rogue Waste podcast and I were talking about yesterday. Uh, I had her on my show. Episode will be coming out in a week or so. But we talked about how... You know, the energy of the planet, most people are kind of blocking themselves out from it with all of this static negative energy. And I thought, you know, in that moment, I'm like, well, it's kind of like a dam in the sense that most people, and we'll use the artificial reality as the, as the dam in this example, but most people are blocked off from Mother Earth's energy source, from the, the they're disconnected from the energy, but in the past they were connected to it. They just might've, you know, not been aware of it. Right. But now we're in this age where people are literally being possibly cut off from that energy. I think in a way that leaves the potential for that water being blocked up by that dam to push, you know, push through with stronger force and, and connect with the people who are aware of, and awake towards that energy uh, with a higher volume than they would if the 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 energy wasn't being blocked. You know, I, I think that's I think that's that's a great way of looking at it. That's a great way of uh, the the idea that maybe there was once a time that people were so integrated that they didn't even realize that they were integrated. Right. Like it was just a way of being. They didn't name it. They didn't name it. Uh, some people, some cultures were very very aware. Um, but then the slow drift, I mean, if you, so, so this is funny. So if you go back and you look at, um, a lot of the stuff, which was written and talked about in the 1800s and you compared like a colonialist, I guess this wasn't really the the colony times, but nonetheless, the colonists were seen as immensely disconnected from the natural world, from the, the people who were living in North America at the time. You know, they were like, you guys are the ones who are like back then were 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 the, the the Indians were saying the colonists like, listen, you don't know how to hunt, you don't know any of these cycles, you're already disconnected. But right. they were all they were a thousand times more connected than we are now. Those colonists, in a way, yeah, to the natural world, 
right? I mean, just going back to the idea of they knew when the moon was, they knew when the moon cycle was, where even just to realize, like, I know there's going to be more light out tonight. We can go outside, we can do a nighttime activity because there's going to be a full moon, because there's no artificial light and we don't need torches or what have you. So they, but there was, because it was not a culture which really valued it, as it moved off, there was not a need to know these natural systems. As they moved off, it became really easy to, to move off of these, these uh, connections um, that they had that they didn't even realize that they had. And, and just like right now, I would say the majority of us are unaware of how deeply connected we are to the, you know, everything which comes from the media sphere, the internet, all of that. We're so connected to it, we don't even realize that we're connected to it. Um, and so we're kind of doing the opposite um, by, by, by not realizing how connected we are, but wanting to go and reconnect to something else so we can begin to see what we have been connected to all along. You know, that's part of this, this whole idea of what I call the rewilding consciousness. Um, that, I think that is a good way of looking at it. And I also think that uh, what I'm describing is another analogy which is often used, which is when, when the, uh, the colonists would first arrive at any sort of place which they were they are the, the explorers, not the colonists, the explorers, whether that be Columbus or Captain Cook. You know, we always hear these stories of how the, the native people couldn't see the boats. It's called the invisible ship. And... Um, they people were sitting at a natural harbor on a beach and the 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 ships would pull in and none of the native people could see it because it was so outside of their context that their brain their brain just just ignored seeing a ship because they had no point of reference but it was only through the the the, the elders who noticed that there was a strange pattern in the water something which they knew very well and they were able to deduct that, oh, there's got to be something over there. And then eventually they saw the ship. Like, you know, this is a story that's told of like, of what happened when, when Captain Cook arrived in Australia, it said like what happened when Columbus arrived in, in, you know, the Caribbean and what forth. And that story has got a lot of holes. It's like, you know, how would you know that? How would you know what these people could see or not see? But nonetheless, I think it points to something which we're describing, which is we don't really understand what we're looking at, but we can begin by looking at all of the details around it and a new picture is going to come into into view and so by looking at the relationship between the moon and the sun and full moon and the earth and all of these things we're like studying all of this stuff around us not so much that that it is going to in itself tell us something but the act of doing so may bring us to something we can't even imagine what we're looking at that's what that's what i find of curiosity and, and of interest of this practice. Yeah, I love it. I think that's, uh, that's exactly why this is becoming the handbook for the apocalypse, because we're following through with our sort of mission statement of revealing or at least participating in this process of revealing. And I think that's exactly what you're describing. When you, when you witness the actuality of what the moon, the sun, and the earth are doing from our earthly perspective, it connects you with that baseline reality, which is, in essence, what I think is going to be revealed to people through any apocalypse, is that, oh, this is all fake, false reality, this society, this system, the empire, you know, 
and all we have is our connection to Mother Earth and nature. I think that's the great apocalypse in a sense. So learning how to connect with the baselines or the constants of our world and our perceptual reality, I think are pivotal, especially if you're going to live as humans did for thousands of years, uh, we're told, by, you know, observing the stars, the moon, the sun, and and knowing where they were in order to judge their position on the earth and judge their position within the 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 year or the seasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I think that is a, a really nice sentiment maybe for us to to wrap this this latest segment up because that that summed it up perfectly. Thank you. Well we do have we have some shout outs. I do want to keep uh, All right, definitely people. go through there. Yes, yes, yes. Let's do that. So Joel McNulty, uh, he is sending us some music coming up real soon. He said he's got a client project he's working on, and he's been super inspired by this podcast and several others, which he mentions. And he says that he's planning on writing a song about the Susquehanna, as well as two other songs inspired by Tinfoil Hat called Shapeshifting Alien Jesus and The Ronin Soul. So I'm excited to hear this Susquehanna song, and maybe we'll even get the audio and play it on uh, on this episode or on a future episode if he allows us to. I think that sounds fantastic. Thank you, Joel. Really cool stuff. And then our second shout-out for today goes to Drew. Drew says that if we are ever in Montauk, he would love to uh, give us some ideas about what to check out. He knows all about Camp Hero. He knows about the Montaukett Indian Village uh, archaeological site. He says he's living in Maine now, but, (laughs) you know, basically open invite if I'm ever in an area. I think this goes for you too, Mike. Forever near Drew, he says he would love to buy us a beer. But he basically gave us some some pretty cool inside uh, tips and says he would love to help us find our way around if we ever do end up in Montauk. Kind of uh, like what I said, I think, what was that, episode two or three, I was down there. So we didn't mm-hmm. quite end up going to Montauk, but um, that's it's not off the table for sure. <laughs> Well, I would love to be able to make my way out there at some point. And so it's nice to know that, that we've got friends there. Right on. So, yeah, that about, uh, that about does it for our messages. There's a bunch of messages that come in through the Instagram, but that's just it's just very complicated to <laughs> go through all of those. Um, they're not exactly organized, and other people send me messages about other things. So if you want to get a message straight to me and Mike for the Your Handbook for the Apocalypse show, go to podinbox.com slash MFTIC. The MFTIC is in all capital letters, and you can leave Mike and I a message directly, and we'll play it on the show. Still haven't gotten any for this show, but I got a couple for My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, which was nice, but I should... uh. I should send you the embed code so maybe you can post it on your site, Mike. What do you think? Is that possible? Would you be able to embed like an RSS player and an inbox on your homepage there? Or Possibly. Possibly. I, um, 
I kind of shut down my website a couple months ago where I said, I'm not doing anything on it, but maybe it's time for me to do something with it. And that would be the thing I'd want to do. Well, it, it's not shut down. People could still go there and, and click on uh, links to, to various other places, right? It's just not, uh, it's not as. I used, I used to have a whole lot more than what's there now. Right. right. That is. So you're right. It's not shut down, but it's not what it used to be. Okay. Well, I think, uh, you know, if we could put the podcast feed up there, that would be, that would be helpful in the sense that anybody who sees or comes across your your episodes that you did before this, uh, when you did plug SusquehannaAlchemy.com, they might find the podcast. I don't know. Just a thought. There we go. That's a great idea. And then um, we have an update on what you mentioned last week with doing live presentations. I know you and I kind of talked about it on the phone, but for people who are listening and are excited and for something like that and are in the East Coast area, uh, looks like we might be doing something in February, January time. So stay tuned for more updates on that. That's all we can say for now, but it looks like we, we might be doing uh, a cool presentation hosted by yours truly, presented um, presentations given by Mike and two mystery folks. We'll just say mystery teachers, wisdom keepers. Um, but yeah, that's that sounds about right, right, Mike? We don't want to give too many details. We don't away. right. We don't have we don't have anything finalized yet, but we're moving towards something really good. Exactly. Cool. Well, that does it for another episode of uh, Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. Thank you for listening, and be sure to go into the episode description and show Mike some love on Subscribestar. Help me out on Patreon. We definitely cannot do this for free. As much as we do enjoy doing it, uh, it does help to get some support. So show us some love if you find some value in this show. We definitely find value from you listening, but we could definitely use a little bit of that moolah to help out. Anyways, Mike, any last words? I think we covered it, Mark. <laughs> right on. All right. Well, that does it. Peace.